0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is episode forty eight which will be the first of our Amazon interviews. Jane Slade was the first early Amazonian that I was able to schedule to talk with, and Jane joined Amazon's nascent customer service team when it was only a couple of people, some computers, and one phone line. Over the coming years, she helped build the customer service operations at Amazon into the enormous team that it is today, Jane recalls for us what it was like in the early days and why keeping customer service central to everything that Amazon does is probably the key driver for the company's success. Please enjoy. Jane Slade, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Sure, Brian. So I I do like to always kind of start off with... um, you know, educational background and that sort of thing, and um, looking at least on your your LinkedIn CV, um, you didn't have any sort of a, a tech background; more of a liberal arts background.
1: Yep, I was pretty typical early. I have a degree in linguistics from the University of Washington, which is really the math of language, so it's kind of a logic puzzle. Mm-hmm. So it's not too far <laughs> off. I thought might I might do something with. Computers, artificial intelligence, very interesting. But um, I had the attention span of a little gnat, and I actually never took any programming classes or anything. So I just went straight into slacking after that. Mm -hmm. And then I got a master's in education, um, which was, again, uh, just a a whim. I'm very interested in education. I'm still interested in education, but the environment – in the public schools when i did my student teaching was not attractive to me it was bureaucracy and i was just young and learning about myself and i i knew i needed something a little more action packed and again i slacked it was really kind of the grungy slacky time in seattle and um, i lived downtown in a loft with a bunch of artists and I commuted to Vashon Island and I worked for a guy named Michael Mead, who's a mythologist and he has a nonprofit and he sort of brings mythology to really gnarly urban problems. Wow. Today's problems.
0: Wow. That's interesting.
1: It's pretty cool. And I did a lot of stuff for him. I edited magazine articles he wrote. I, um, organized a nonprofit. I, I put together a donor database. So kind of everywhere I went, I did databases and, you know, organize things. And I did a bunch of fundraising and grant writing. And, um, and I wanted to grow it and do cool things. And he's a really organic guy. And he's basically Jeff Bezos's polar opposite. And he said, you know, I really don't want this to get big. I want this to be small and human-sized and I was in my twenties and the internet was coming on and one of our board members wrote software. How can I explain this to, um, model how buildings could protect, protect themselves from terrorism. Hmm. So he was talking about that to me. Always. We were on the phone. He was in San Rafael and he was saying, Hey, you should do donor research on the internet. You should do grant research on the internet. And I really didn't have a clue. So he walked me through it. Um, and that was my first internet. I had a, an account at the Speakeasy in downtown Seattle where I did my email. I had no computer, um, and I just thought this internet thing is so cool, and I could just smell it. And I had maybe wanted to go into library science, and I thought I'll research that. And there was this big schism between old school librarians and you know sort of the digital age, and it was so early and. I just thought, ah, I want to wait until that gets worked out. But meanwhile, I really want to learn about the Internet. Mm-hmm. So that was where I was. And um, I read this article in the Seattle Weekly, uh, an interview with Jeff Bezos. And he described what he was doing. And, you know, I was definitely a liberal arts, books, you know, read about everything and to sell books on the Internet. I could learn about this Internet thing. at the end of the article, he basically put out a call for um, – recruiting people Mm -hmm. and you know basically described me you know over educated um, uh, high test scores uh, willing to do anything
0: and and what what time period would this be would it be like late 95 or 96
1: yeah I want to say early 96 Mm -hmm. but it could have been I believe it was early 96
0: so you sent in a resume basically
1: I sent in a resume and i uh I interviewed, and i actually i think I was the first person ever to get a job at Amazon who did not interview with jeff Bezos mm. so he just trusted people i had the right I had the test scores man i'd never used my test scores before I'd never done anything competitive academically was what, so was, to what
0: was what was the interview the process sort of like was it the the, the stereotypical you know uh how, you know wire why, are, why are, um uh, manhole covers round that we always hear about? Or what was it like in those days?
1: Oh, you know, they I know they did those kinds of questions for um, coders. Um, and I think they did some sort of a question. It wasn't a manhole question, but it was definitely some hairy problem. It was probably like a hiring problem because they wanted me to work in customer service mm-hmm. first off. And you, they didn't sort of tell you. You didn't agree to one thing. You would just do whatever.
0: So, so and, when you, um, when you answer this ad, you're not you don't you don't even have a position in mind. You're just going to see what what oh, they think. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: No, I was ready for action. Whatever. I that was kind of how I'd run my life up until that point. So that was not weird for me. So I was just I was psyched to do something new. And um, Nicholas Lovejoy, I think, interviewed me. I just talked with everybody a little bit and. I can't even remember what we talked about, but it was just the perfect fit. It was just one of those things where it wasn't even a question. I just, I wanted to not leave the building.
0: Mm-hmm. And we were,
1: I was just ready to jump in.
0: Which building was this, by the way, at this point? This
1: was the one down um, by Pecos Pit Barbecue, uh, just near the Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Pioneer Square, so it was just me on my bike right down the street.
0: And so, how is it that you. You end up with the position that director of of customer service strategy eventually. Yeah. But so, but how how is it that you end up in customer service? Like, how did did that appeal to you? Did they think, no, this is you're you're the right fit for that?
1: Oh, I think it was. Um, I didn't have any specialized background, so it wasn't going to be a technical thing. Um, and they they needed people who could write. I could write. Um, they needed people who could communicate I was a good communicator I think that that was what it was yeah you I know, know it, like the right bit.
0: sorry to interrupt but it seems to me that there was this period of time early on where there was sort of like a liberal arts focus to who they were hiring. I mean you know they hired absolutely. this entire editorial staff to write reviews and things like that. is that sort of your sense of of that time period
1: absolutely I mean Jeff wanted a a credible offering I mean he he was it was real it wasn't you know abstract he really wanted people who were dead into this and um and as far as customer service and the warehouse a lot of what they were doing and i didn't know this at the time because i didn't really have a bunch of industry experience had never been done before and so they needed people who who were willing to figure it out from scratch
0: well actually yeah let's 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 delve into that a little bit. So, what is the state of the company at this point? There are there still under a hundred employees at this point. Is it still? Oh yeah. Just everything's by the seat of their pants, right?
1: Oh yeah. I think I was a twenty-something permanent employee. Mm-hmm. It was it was early. I mean, I walked into these grungy offices attached to a warehouse, and um, the customer service folks, two of whom graduated from Reed, uh, you know, just smart, fun. Warren Zevon in the background, sitting in front of X terminals, I think four people, um, answering customer email. Every once in a while, the phone would ring. And Jeff had an office up these stairs, and everybody was sort of into everything. I think they were just hiring a marketing VP or director or something like that for the first time. So it it was just really uh, not much.
0: Did you get that famous uh, door desk?
1: I got the door desk... I did, but it was not famous yet. It mm-hmm. was really just, um, just what they were doing. It was so organic, you know. It wasn't like a big, let's do door discs. Mm-hmm.
3: That
0: will
1: be cool and noteworthy and newsworthy. You know, it mm-hmm. simply was. It was a piece of wood.
0: So, what is the remit that they give you guys in terms of how their customer service is evolving? Um, again, is it a situation where? Since they don't know what they're doing, you don't know what you're. You're you're just sort of working it out on the fly, figuring it out as you as you go.
1: Yes, and what luckily at that time it wasn't the volume wasn't so much that it was any craziness, Um, but it was just uh, make the customer happy. I mean, it was just solve every problem, and most of the solving problems was running down to the warehouse and packing the order that was stuck because of a glitch. I mean, it was really just make it happen, whatever the customer needed. And then there, were, there was some research, customer research. You know, lots of people were not too used to using search engines, and nor was our search totally fabulous. So they were looking for materials.
0: Well, not only that, but I mean, on, on that level, how, many, how much did you have to do helping people figure out how to use the web and use web browsers <laughs> and things like that?
1: Totally. Okay, at this point, it was really early adopters. So at this point, there wasn't so much of that. There was a little bit, but but really it was early adopters. So they were more curious about the system and um, can, can you get this? Whoa, that's crazy. Can you get this? You know, that kind of approach to it. So it was very shortly after that, it began to be the, you know, teaching your grandmother how to drive a stick over the phone kind of business. So there was that a little later.
0: So – uh ninety six it's still it well w- when you get there the first few months it's it's still kind of small, but at some point like what's the tipping point where all of a sudden things start to take off? Was it that wall street journal article it was
1: the wall Street journal okay. article and, what and w- it got nuts
0: so like overnight
1: overnight i mean orders just I mean, I don't remember the specifics. I wasn't in charge of reliability or, you know, very close to it at that time. But they were doing everything they could to keep everything up and running because of the onslaught of orders. And so then customer service got absolutely hot. And there was a a lot of um, people curious about Internet security, like, are you crazy that I would put my credit card on the Internet? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So there was a lot of talking people out of that tree. They could just leave the last four digits of their credit card number. And then we had this voicemail and they would just leave the rest of their credit card number on the voicemail and well, we'd send them an email back.
0: And also, is it true that at this point they're still um, like walking the credit card numbers on a disc so that they don't put it online and things like that? No. Okay. Not
1: that I not that I know of. I mean, maybe storage was that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but – I mean, the thing is, I ended up giving this, having this conversation with a lot of people sort of uh, internet security at this point, is kind of like a bike lock. Um, Someone can steal your bike if they want to steal your bike, even if you have a bike lock on it, but the person who knows how to bust a bike lock is not interested in your stupid bike. They have bigger fish to fry. So, you know, there's not someone after your credit card number and, and yes, they weren't online. So. You know, at this point, and we couldn't see them either mm-hmm. as customer service reps. But really, when you go to the restaurant, you're giving a human your credit card number. Right, it's right. easier to steal that way. So then we had a lot of that conversation with people.
0: So then, um, explain for me what happens now when all of a sudden it's overnight things are 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 really taking off. Um, are you do you enter a phase when you're just having to hire people left and right, any any warm body you can get?
1: Yes. Now, okay, it can't be any warm body. So let's go back to what was happening technically in customer service at that point. Mm-hmm. We had a chunky telephone with chunky buttons with I think four lines. I mean, it was silly. It was definitely that early, early, early. But but we also didn't have the phone in any kind of phone number in any kind of a prominent place. So it really was mostly email. We had X terminals. You know, right. we in the Unix command line. Right, right. Um, we were. Uh, using Perl scripts and Unix commands to do everything, to talk to the data. So this is not your customer service job where you can just be any person off the street. You have to be someone who can learn very, very fast. There wasn't a ton we could do, so it wasn't an ocean of commands. But you have to be okay with that.
0: It, it, terminal, it, it, You wouldn't have the the script that someone on on the other end of a phone has today written out on their terminal with this is the possible solutions for these problems that they're talking about or anything like that.
1: Absolutely not. I mean first off, the problems changed daily because they would fix things and then introduce new functionality and break. And you know, it was it was new and um and and the things that we could do for customers are very routine. Put their credit card in, change their address, you know, see if an order went through. It was really it was basic, but the tools weren't friendly. And it changed so, so fast. So we had to get people like me, people who were technically, um, comfortable and, but not so experienced that they wanted a different job. And we needed lots of those. So luckily at that time, there was kind of a slacker population in Seattle, so it was not undoable. mm -hmm. We found lots of people.
0: When, so when does it change from, from being this sort of ad hoc, uh, you know, do it by the seat of your pants to being at some point you know into ninety seven ninety eight when you're hitting the the millions and millions of of users and and customers and things like that, it has to be professionalized when when did that point come about?
1: Mm, way later than you'd think really I want to say it was more like ninety eight to mm. ninety nine like it it was. Silly. I mean, it was always better and better all along the way because we would we would often hire people who were people who could learn to Perl script really really fast. So we had tinkerers in our midst the whole time, and um, but it was hard. I mean, we were. I would hire. So once we got to the point where where we had to hire buckets of people every week, we would go to temp agencies in Seattle, and it was kind of a thing hiring through temp agencies in Seattle. It wasn't like Kelly, uh, you know, secretarial services. It was, everybody was hiring through temp agencies. And we would hire people uh, as conditional employees because we had to see and we could tell right away if they could handle the X-term environment or not. And um, so we would just hire, you know, X percent. We'd probably have to get rid of 20% of the people, if not more, some weeks uh, because they couldn't handle it. And we, so luckily we just had volumes of people in Seattle underemployed.
0: And there's that famous quote that you told Businessweek oh, that you no. go to the temp agencies and, and say, send us your freaks.
1: So here's the thing. I am so earnest. I am telling a reporter pretty much every single thing that's true. And so I had no idea what a reporter would do with that. I, I had a really good relationship with uh, one of the temp agencies, In fact, she lives really close to me right now and works for the school district. And I I didn't want the failure rate. It was heartbreaking to fire people. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of everybody's time. We were getting bad press because it was a really rough job, a hard job. And we just needed to hire people a lot faster. And so I was trying to say these are the kinds of people that are working out. The people that weren't working out were people that were sent because they were very clean-cut, earnest, you know, people that cared a lot about their presentation and niceness but really had no skills and kind of couldn't handle the pressure. The people that could handle the environment were people who were a little bit geekier, a little bit um, more comfortable in an ambiguous environment, working on their own, making things up, having things changed you know, 180 degrees middle of their workday. Those were the people that we needed. And so it took me a while to get to where she really understood the profile. And I think it was when I said, you know, look, if they're freaks to other people, weirdly, they work for us. So Right. And so this, al- your freaks.
0: It's almost like the the people that would work well in a normal office, given these 10 directives to do every single day, those aren't the people that actually succeed for you guys.
1: Exactly. Hmm. So they just had to keep that in mind. And, and it changed our numbers so much. It was so much better after that.
0: Mm-hmm. And wh- what is your role evolving into at this point?
1: So... Uh, Fairly early on, ba- back in the original building, I become training fairly early on. Um, I don't know. I have a master's in education. I pretty much did not need a master's in education to train people. But it was it was something that I went into right away. And oh, by the way, everybody who was hired at Amazon at that time and pr- for quite a few years had to go through a customer service training. Mm-hmm. So they had to, as they, as they say at Microsoft, and eat, your, eat your own dog food. Like They had to see how horrific it was from the customer perspective and from the internal perspective and then they would go forth and correct every problem
0: so because so because the focus is so hardcore on we're just going to please the customer 100 percent of the time that they want everybody to have that focus from the very beginning
1: it wasn't just that they wanted people to understand the nuts and bolts of the store. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a piece of software was the store right. and they wanted people to get it at a gut level, not like, Oh, I get it. You know, please the customer. No, 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 no. Like they wanted. They, we wanted them to see what it took to please the customer and mm-hmm. therefore in their job, what they could do ahead of time so that this displeasing the customer never happened.
0: But also early on, I, I, I always got the sense too, that, you know, because it's so crazy and ramping up so so fast, everyone kind of has to do everything at some point. Like surely there were times when, when you were packaging orders, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, everyone did have to do everything at that point, but even beyond when everybody had to do everything, it just, it just, it was like pulling people back on a um, slingshot. They just slingshotted into their jobs. They were so into making it better and cooler and they just had a visceral understanding
0: so so go what, back what it was go back to explaining um, your what your role evolved into I, I interrupted you there so you're okay you're starting to set up the training regimen and and the organization of of, of that sort of stuff go on
1: onboarding people mm-hmm. um, and figuring out scripts and we kind of all together would need to figure out how do we how do we rationalize this how do we make it efficient so it was Everybody involved in everything and me sort of gravitating toward um, hiring and training. And that, and then always strategy, like always, you know, what's next, looking ahead, how do we, how do we make it happen, how do we ramp up fast enough? Um, and then we hired um, Colleen Byram, and she was the, I believe, first director of customer service. And it felt like hiring our first grown up
3: Mm-hmm. Because Where did
0: she, she come from?
1: Um, all this page Maker, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that environment, I think Adobe had bought them. And so she had done the startup thing already and she understood customer service. And that lady is a impossible to put in the box. So she was ready to roll on thinking outside the box. She went through customer service training. She answered customer email all the time. So she helped us kind of, Imagine what it might look like if we were in different countries. Imagine what it might look like if if there were lots of locations. Imagine what it would look like if we were selling puppies. Now everything you design has to work in all those scenarios. So we just went forth and continued designing things and making it better. And then we moved up to Second Avenue, started to get more organized. um, And it really was just growth. I mean, we really just did nothing but growth for a long, long time. Managed growth.
0: And, um, I actually, unlike a lot of the other companies from this era, you know, I wasn't able to find a lot of stories of like around the IPO day, you know, there's a lot of famous Netscape stories of their IPO and even Yahoo. Do you have any memories of, of the IPO or, or around that period at all?
1: I remember the run up to it. I remember the professionalization of the accounting. I remember, um meeting the VC people at a retreat. I remember all the kind of buzz and the work behind the scenes to getting ready to do that. And the thing was, Jeff was kind of from that world of finance as well. So mm-hmm. he, we kind of had to talk about it all along the way. And you know, he gave us a good narrative all along the way of what we could expect. And, um, you know, it was really celebratory. It, uh, it was really celebratory. I can't. I, I wish I had more detailed stories. It mm-hmm. just seemed, it seemed smooth. I mean, it, there was the funny stories of, you know, um, of them going to the IPO meetings and forgetting shoes, and you know, that was that kind of stuff that was just goofy, noteworthy stuff. The rest of it was just it was very successful and very smooth.
0: Well, that also makes me think of a question was there a sense of of that professionalization coming in you mentioned you know the financing the accounting and all that stuff was there also a sense of that in terms of the you know the hr systems the 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 warehousing the logistics all that stuff where they're bringing in people from other you know companies at, at some point to 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 the adults bringing the adults into the room,
1: <laughs> yes, there was that definitely going on from from the minute I got there and and of course, ramping up as we ramped up and with mixed results, I mean sometimes you brought the grown up in and the grown up could not relate, and they had to leave mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, some sometimes um, we grew our own i mean the vice president of global customer service, Tom Wyland, for a while there he he was a contemporary of mine. He, he came in after I did through customer service. So he they really distributed people throughout the company that came through customer service. So there was definitely a grow your own and pick and choose professionals from outside. But the picking and choosing was, was tough because people would come in and really resent the homegrownness of it, not understanding that there's no way we could do what we were doing if we hadn't done homegrown. Mm-hmm. So, for example, okay, so for me, I'd never seen anything different than our systems. And so I was kind of grossed out by it, but I I didn't know how horrific they were. Then we met with some vendors. Could some vendors supply our customer service software? You know, could they do that and, and take us to the next level quickly? Because the resources at Amazon were focused on the front end, focused on growing the business and focused on reliability. So sort of the developer time and the hardware resources weren't, at that point, even in the warehouse, they weren't in the warehouse and customer service. They were throwing humans at it, absolutely, as they were growing. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we were talking to these people. Could you provide these uh, customer service systems? They're, they were so freaked out by our numbers. That they just couldn't. They couldn't provide anything to scale. Nobody was doing anything along the order of what we were doing. So – we understood it better than anybody else. There weren't grown-ups who, who really could handle it. And that was the case in lots of different areas. I remember they brought people in who were retail experts. And if you weren't doing it in the old-school way, they just didn't understand it, and they had to go.
0: Well, is it, was that partially the, also the, the generational divide of, of doing e-commerce versus traditional commerce?
1: Totally. Yeah. So it was a technology thing. It was a generational thing. And also, oh, by the way, we weren't proven. So, you know, there were p- people maybe resented how lean everything was and for what purpose. You know, this isn't even in any way as successful as where I came from. And they just couldn't see. They didn't have the vision that could see past the kind of grungy front door.
0: So let's get back to a little bit back to the the chaos again. <laughs> um, the, chaos. the the Christmas periods. Yeah. What were those like? Because it seems like, man, you had a, you had a couple Christmases, maybe ninety eight, ninety nine, that that were probably insane.
1: Totally dicey. I mean. I mean, really, any kind of big jolt brought a, a diciness. I remember going to Costco to get books, for example. I, you know, every, everything. We were used to dicey, but the volume at at the holiday seasons, and basically everything shut down except getting the orders out. So everybody went to the warehouse or to customer service. And again, there was a, it was a training exercise for me. It wasn't. I wasn't actually doing the customer service. It was managing. Hordes of people answering customer email and phone calls, and and it was round the clock. It was mandatory, long shifts, and up until we had warehouses in other locations, it was really all in Seattle. Kind of everybody going down to the warehouses, and then we once we had multiple locations, it was shipping people out and staying in hotels. I never had to do it because I was in customer service, so I was always local. Mm-hmm. But it was crazy. I mean, that's just it was it was nuts it was it was just th- really throwing humans at at it and promising to fix it when the season
0: was over and what about the the chaos well actually before i ask this question do you get the sense that the idea was always to move beyond books from from when you first got there
1: yes i mean what i w- what i as a story as i heard it the origin story as i heard it when i first onboarded was jeff saying he was looking for a product that would test the capability of this platform he was looking at something that couldn't be done well without it but that but that it was a test case for sure right books now, were no we we didn't the books were te- a test case it's because you, it's hard to carry everything. It's hard to have everything. It was just a great product to start out with. Someone else in, with an MBA is going to be much better at explaining to you mm-hmm. why it's the perfect product. Mm-hmm. But I remember telling people what my job was. And my, this is always the case. I always had some weird job. But when I said I was working for this internet bookstore, people were, of course, Oh, Jane, you're so cute. How cute selling books on the internet. That's so fun. You know, just no concept. But when people understood how how it really did solve problems, our first customers were either the early adopters who were into into the tech part of it or people who could not get these books. That meant so much to them or helped them so much and they could get it right away. So it was just, it really was a, a total game changer of what the internet could do and what a catalog could do uh, what multiple sources could do—it was—it was pretty cool. And but w- there was definitely the sense that we had to be able to do this with any product.
0: So that—that that was where I was going to go then. So how, how does the system evolve now when you're moving into music and and videos and 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 eventually all every product you can imagine?
1: Well. Each of the products, of course, had their weird hiccups. Um, but yet, it really was not that different. I mean, really, it was a, there were logistics problems and new suppliers. It was always about the new supplier. Right. I, I was going
0: to I was gonna say, because with the books, at least, you're still working from the, the catalogs that you've been working from from the very beginning from, from the book suppliers. So when you move into these other products, is it creating a whole new system?
1: Not really because really there are small suppliers and there are distributors. Um, You you could buy direct from manufacturer. Really, books were a good product to start with. It was really size and shape and um, the shape of the industry as far as negotiation and how to offer that product to customers. So, for example, with toys. Toys are something that people buy on recommendation. It is just a fact. So our recommendation engine had to get really great. Our our um, but and our logistics had to accommodate much much different size shape contents. That it could have the product could have so many more dimensions than books could have. So it was just it was more of a size shape Slight difference in marketing, that kind of thing, the customer service of it um, the, the customer service started to get started to get more complex when it came to working with partners mm-hmm. target I remember the target partnership
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, it was managing expectations, understanding what the pipeline of people coming in to order something did they know who they ordered it from um, I mean basically, my love in life is messy problems and it was just created a little bit more mess every single time
0: because uh, the the customers ordering from you, they believe, but they're depending on the partnership. It's being fulfilled by Toys R Us or by Target or whatever. So that makes it messy.
1: Right. It made it messy, but uh, a lot of that messiness was really short lived. I mean, Amazon learned that Amazon was the best at fulfilling stuff. The most reliable was Amazon. So, I feel like we sort of sent feelers out to having other people do stuff and then pulled them back and said, ah, we can do that better. And they just did it better. And then came the age of um, getting the guys from Walmart in, Mm -hmm. the grown-ups from Walmart (laughs) in their big 10-gallon-a-half and and who knew logistics really, really well and just whipped it. And it was just the most fun. They just were so, so, so good. And Amazon got really good at logistics. That was the next thing. It was like, can we do as little with logistics as we do with lots of other things? No, we gotta get really, really, really good at logistics.
0: They couldn't they couldn't go on the cheap and buy the seat of your pants with that anymore.
1: Well, it just wasn't satisfactory and it wasn't a good didn't make financial sense. It wasn't reliable for the customer. Just it wasn't using the engine to its best effect. It, it wasn't using it it was it was being attached to old models and instead everybody just said oh no you know we can do this better and they did
0: and what's the what was the priority was it in your opinion was it more if i had to make you choose between offering the lowest price or offering the best customer service what was amazon's what did they value more
1: well it that's a false choice because what they valued was the best, absolute best experience for the customer.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and they knew that by customer behavior. And so sometimes it was price that, that was the absolute best experience for this product for the customer. You know, and it was always customer service, but it, that was the human touch. But really when it was, it was don't need customer service, like anticipate the needs of the customer, anticipate what they, what they want and need. Sometimes it was price. So when it I guess there were, let me just back up when you're kind of competing on price mm-hmm. in the market, I, I think Jeff and everyone was very aware of what the prices were in the market. I mean, it mattered what, what your strategy was, your negotiation behind the scenes with suppliers, all of that mattered from a business perspective. But the thing that solved all of that was making the customer happy was just like making it seamless, making it the best experience possible and price is part of that it's a subset
2: okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com bite clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door
1: On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's com slash wondery.
0: Do you feel that the at least for the from the perspective of customer service, that Amazon's philosophy on customer service changed all over time? Or do you feel like to this day it still has the same philosophy that you had when you walked in on day one?
1: To this day, it still has the same philosophy. My husband works for Amazon right now in mm-hmm. the Kindle area. And it's just so much fun for him to see now. Same exact thing. It is absolutely... Because it's a, it's a business philosophy too. It's not just... We just want to be this because we think it's so cool and we value it, which everybody does. But it's just – it is the business philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it guess what? It works. I mean, people say they kind of can't help but order things on Amazon. It's just – it's there. It's reliable. It's, it is the best. I find it quickly. I—you know, What's not to love, basically? So it, it, I, that never changed. That, that has never changed. There may have been some short-term strategies, business strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes it was hard to be uh, in customer service and get the least technology love internally because I would say it's the store, the logistics, then the back end, you know, for customer service. And I would say we got good systems later than anybody. Because if you do it right on the front end and on the logistics side, you don't need customer service. So the, the, the bucks went there.
0: Uh, I have a, a two-parter, um, and the first one is really just wide open in general. Just um, your impressions of, of, of Jeff Bezos as, as a leader.
1: Well, let's see. I think he's fantastic. I think he's really focused. I think he's able to tell people a focused vision of what's going to happen. I think he is, um, he wants to jump into something right away, and he is really, and he's like a, one of the smart kids who is impatient with people who don't get what's going on. He really wants to talk to people who get what's going on. So he can be abrupt <laughs> But he just is always having so much fun. So I just think, as a leader, as a standard bearer, he holds himself to high standards. He holds his philosophy to high standards. You can argue with him, and if you have a good argument, go for it. Um, and he is always having a good time. So I just think he's a, he's fantastic.
0: And the second part of that would be, how have you in in your time there did you see him evolve at all as as the company evolved?
1: Oh, gosh. I probably should have thought about this one ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, but in no, he's the same guy. I mean, he, I think he evolved his vision. He, uh, he's, just a, he's a learner, so he learns from what does and doesn't work. And so he evolves in that way because he is a self-developer and, and he's learned. So I think he, he did evolve, but he really is the same beast. Today, I think so I don't when, hang out with them.
0: when you um, when did you end up uh, leaving Amazon? what is it, around two thousand one ish or so?
1: So I went into product development for a little while to clean up the out of print mm-hmm. offering mm-hmm. and I thought maybe I wanted to do something sexier, and I really missed being able to touch everything, and I'm also not motivated by making money. So you really in product development should be at least, it should be good sport to you to make a lot of money and sell a lot of things. But me, I'm more of like, give me a messy problem. So operations, I went right back into operations. And then I did strategy for a while, which allowed me to just tackle all the new things, any new partnership, new geography, new... um, technology internally, kind of change management, project management, any new stuff, could pull together teams from lots of different places to get it done. So I just got to work on all the best, gnarliest problems. I had a kid around that time, and my husband um, quit Microsoft and stayed home with our child because that was important to us. And so I really wanted to make work count. We did some great, I did the first outsourcing in India, which was Super fun, mm-hmm. um, and my team also tackled kind of the a big piece of profit profitability right before I left. We had this project where we were data mining customer service patterns and assigning them to root causes. You know, there's the 80 20 rule. If you solve, you know. 20% of the problem solving is gets rid of 80% of the problems. Low-hanging fruit, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't where we were about 2000. There was, It was the long tail that was killing us. You know, it was just little tiny problems adding up to big um, customer service cost and, you know, not great customer experience. And we just mined through the data, the customer service data. We assigned... Um, a slice of profitability based on root causes to other departments, and they just tackled just blow by blow tackled all of this stuff, and brought our contacts per order down to some ridiculously minuscule account amount. Excuse me, just by and anti- having our systems anticipate what customers expect and know in advance when we are likely to miss. And so proactively contact them or just solve the problem behind the scenes. So that was a super fun kind of capstone project that was everything I'd wanted to do. And then I was ready to have another baby and I just was sort of done. I,
0: and I, I don't mean this in any pejorative way at all, but looking at, at, at people's CVs and things like that, I feel like there's a lot of people from this early time that there, it seems like there was a, a high burnout rate. Like it was, it was such a crazy, wild, fast ride that a lot of people needed to take a breather around that point.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it really was. I would say that I wouldn't call myself a burnout case, but I definitely was exhausted and ready to think about something else.
0: And right. I, I, like I said, I didn't mean it pejoratively, but just totally. Yeah. No,
1: I, I get it. it. It really was exhausting. It, it's, it was exhausting. I mean, there, the, the great thing about it is there's always something new and incredibly hard to work on. And if you're attracted to a new, incredibly hard problem every day of the week, like I am, amazing place. I, I'll never beat it as a place to work, never in my life. But, you know, there are more dimensions to life, and it was really hard to, for me to be at Amazon and be moderate. I just I didn't learn how to do it. I wish I had. Um, my husband, on the other hand, he takes we live on an island near Seattle. He takes the 4:30 boat home every day, works from home Monday day a week. He is a moderate dude, and he does Amazon moderately. I could not do it. I mean, he would call me at seven o'clock at night and say, "It's time to go. You know, baby's here. we're ready for you." And he would call again at nine o'clock and I would say, "I told you I'm just about ready to leave." And he would say hello. Two hours passed. <laughs> you know, it was just that much fun that that you sort of killed yourself if the business didn't kill you. And so, I definitely needed a break, and and lots of people did.
0: So, as a as a sort of final question, this one is is wide open. But one of the especially with Amazon, one of the things I'm puzzling over is, you know, I've I've you know done things on netscape and yahoo and a lot of the early players at least in the early 90s mid 90s that were the pioneers a lot of them you know haven't survived and or and or you know aren't you know the the dominant forces they once were so i'm fascinated as i'm getting into the e-commerce players it amazon was really among the first and is still absolutely dominant and so my question is kind of how is it that it's the one pioneer that was the first and and has survived and has thrived so successfully?
1: Well, I would bring it back to Jeff. I would bring it back to Jeff's This is sort of his life playing out. I mean, he does everything he wants. He wants to learn, he wants to grow. He's learning – this is him learning and growing. I've always been so curious as to what would happen if he were not in the picture. What if Jeff got hit by a bus? I mean, I I just think that the trajectory of Amazon is like he's living out some destiny or something. He's just – he'll do anything. He he will not back down and he will try anything. He will look foolish. He does not care. he He doesn't need to dominate some other – company uh as his main objective, he is internally his internal engine is so creative and so relentless. I just think it is the fuel is him
0: and so almost you know the the criticisms that some people have that you know Amazon is getting distracted it's trying to do too many things at once, but that's sort of always been his m o yeah.
1: That's the point, if Amazon weren't distracted by Amazon web services, you know it wouldn't be as strong a company that's the distractions, and he's willing to give something up that turned out to be a distraction. So you know he's really not distracted. he's quite quite focused. now I'm not once again i'm not I'm not a business analyst, mm-hmm. I'm just not, so I don't know I couldn't I don't even have a great prediction about what's the right thing to do on the business landscape, the general business landscape. But I just think that this is not about, that's why I always think that Amazon press misses the mark so much. Everybody wants to make it a tech story or a dot com story or a personality story. This is organic. It's more organic than that. It's, you know, it's what's happening. He's reading what's happening and writing that that's the wave that he's writing.
0: Okay. So seriously, final question now, um, you, uh, you're sort of an Amazon family, and so now, when, when you look back at at what you were there at the beginning for, are, are you just kind of blown away by by what it's become, and and you know what you helped bring to life?
1: Yeah, yeah, I yeah. am. I mean, it's it's fun. Weirdly, it seems so distant. Um, my kids, for example, <laughs> they know kind of in their back of their mind that mommy used to make the money and mommy used to work in Amazon. But they just can't connect to it. I mean, I have teenage daughters, and they just can't. It was so long ago that they can't connect to it, and I almost can't connect
3: to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I end up doing the same exact things I do at Amazon when I volunteer in the community, when I you know, work on a school board or any little thing I do, I'm always helping do the strategy and you know, the web presence, and you know, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. But um, Amazon just seems so far away. It seems like a dream like a long, long time
0: ago. Well, Jane Slade, thanks for uh, recollecting all those dreams for us. Sure.
1: Thank you, Brian. Thanks for bringing it up again.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is Pod, and my personal Twitter is at MCC. Thanks for listening.